I thought I hit on, and I did not hit on. So, of course, my loud voice, I, I can probably go without a microphone. I wouldn't know a difference. Y'all would, but I might not. So, uh, handouts are coming around. I don't have, this isn't this week. I'm sorry. Uh, they took all of them. Um, Steve's bringing them around for you. If uh, you'll just raise your hand, he'll get to you in a second here. Um, most, I think everybody over here, do y'all need handouts pretty much? I think this whole side almost does. There's a couple on this side. Um, we're going to pick up here this morning. Are there any prayer requests or announcements this morning before we begin class? Anything? That... I'm sorry? Okay. Okay, Kendra is on her way to, to South Alabama for school, but she's having some health problems. Okay. Mommy, what's Kendra's last name? Irby, that's right. Okay. Kendra Irby. Okay. For that matter, it makes me remember to remember all the kids going to school. All right, y'all know this this is really the first weekend of the move in for the freshmen, I believe, at uh Faulkner. We will probably have somewhat of an influx for a while as they start uh church surfing and finding out where they want to attend and so we need to keep them in our prayers. Please reach out to them as you can. I know Billy is trying to recruit everyone to be involved in the Stuff a Student program. So if I can put a little plug in there, this is a great opportunity for you to kind of adopt a student uh, for uh, the purposes of just taking them out to lunch once a month. And it's a great program to really get you uh, connected with them, help out with that, and, and help them feel at home away from home. Uh, I remember when I was at Freed Hardeman, I had adopted families there, and it was a wonderful program to kind of give me somebody to, to go get a home-cooked meal with or just go out to eat with, and uh, it was a lot of fun, so please do that, please. I do know we have a welcome uh, college students fellowship on the 25th, so if y'all please mark your calendars for that and plan to uh, uh, be a part of that uh, potluck fellowship meal on the 25th, and uh, we will uh, be welcoming all the, the Faulkner students. I believe the Faulkner football team is going to be with us too. So, obviously, we need to get some food together. Everybody prepare maybe an extra dish or something to help feed them boys. And uh, uh, they'll probably eat me out of house and home. So, uh, we need to make sure we got enough food for them. Sick-wise, of course, we've had a couple this last week. I, I saw Freddie. I don't know where he's at, but I asked him how Miss Virginia was doing. She says she's doing much better. She is at home. Yes, ma'am. Good. Great. Do a checkup next week. Okay. How are you feeling? Good. Good to have you with us, too. Uh, Miss Virginia goes back to the doctor next week for a checkup, so please keep her and Freddie in your prayers, of course. She has thankfully progressed much better uh, in the last week or so, so that's, that's been really good. Um, we've had a uh, death in the family here at Dalreda. Uh, Miss Patsy's mother, Vi Pines, passed away, so please keep Miss Patsy and her family in your prayers, of course. Uh, Miss Vi's... Uh, Visitation will be tonight from 4 to 6, and funerals tomorrow, I believe, at 11. Uh, check the announcement screen after class for confirmation. I'm sorry? 10, I'm sorry. See, I'm glad. Uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow is the um, funeral. But keep her and her family in your prayers as well. Anybody else? All right, let's bow together and let's offer a word of a prayer, please. Lord, we are thankful for the day you've given us, and God, we ask that you be with us as we begin this study period this morning. Please watch over us and help us open up your word and study from it, and gather uh, much information from reading those inspired words you've given. Lord, we ask you to be with the family here at Dalreda. 
We ask that you be with all those that have been mentioned this morning. Be with uh, Ms. Kendra as she is dealing with some health problems, getting ready to go to school in South Alabama. Be with her. Uh, be with uh, all the other college students as they are coming to, to Faulkner and on the other area colleges here in Montgomery. May we reach out to them and, and uh, minister to them as, as much as we can. Help them and encourage them as they are away from their homes and as they are... Uh, uh, here in school, we ask that you be with us at Dalreda in our ministry program, especially Brother Billy, as, as he reaches out and, and does what he can to encourage them in their spiritual walks of life. Lord, we ask that you be with us as a congregation, that we be servants for you and our community and to each other, that we will be the ones that love each other and show that love by our service to one another. Lord, we are so thankful, most of all, for Jesus. We're thankful for the hope of salvation that he gives to us. We're thankful for the blessed assurance that he gives us that he is there and and that you give us strength and comfort in these times of trouble. Be with those that have lost loved ones, especially Sister Patsy and her family, and be with those that have undergone surgery and are still going through evaluations and and checkups like Miss Virginia and help those to continue going well. Lord, above all, we thank you for Jesus, and it's through his name that we pray. Amen. As we continue our study series, and again, if you need a handout, please raise your hand. Steve's got them, and he's coming around uh, this morning. But as we continue our series on questions about God, we've gotten to lesson eight. And lesson eight is this question, would God really send me to hell? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, I try to make it as plain as possible and a question that probably a lot of people may actually ask it in some way, form, or fashion as they uh, go through their uh, spiritual journeys in life, and they start realizing this kind of contradiction, so to speak, or alleged contradiction, when you start talking about how good God is, and the fact that God is so loving in our lives, and all of a sudden, boom, it hits you like a ton of bricks, but God will send you to hell? And the question starts arising for Christians, and an atheist love to throw this at Christians when they debate them, and and they start talking about the non-existence of a God, Uh, they start throwing this uh, argument at you, trying to poke at and prod at the fact that God is all-loving, God is is all-benevolent, that that God is all-good. Those characteristics we've already talked about in this class and kind of form the basis of some of our assumptions. We didn't go into really proving them, but the Scriptures talk about the, the goodness of God. But that if God is so good, why would He ever ever send you to hell. I think it's a very interesting dilemma to think about. Now, I, I put in your, in your, your uh, notes here uh, some perversions, I think, of this punishment that God actually does show and indicate in, in the Scripture. And I'll, I'll throw this up at you. I'm not going to get in-depth. Honestly, this would take a, a lot more of an analysis looking at some of these other uh, religions and denominations and, and their thinking and, and why they think what they think. But think about some of these perversions of, of the idea of God punishing us eternally in hell if we don't obey. Uh, the Christian universalism is, uh, and you may see Christian universalist, uh, the way that sometimes it's, it's on the, the marquees in front of the church buildings that they, that they have. But it is, it is an organization, a religious organization that, that, uh, is, that teaches that eternal hell does not exist and that, in fact, it's a later creation of the church, in fact, to try and scare people into uh, doing the things that, uh, that are taught 
or that are preached or that are said from pulpits. And so it is a later creation of the church. In fact, they, they get into the, the basic argument, which is, this is the argument I think that you see sometimes uh, from uh, the atheists of the world saying, you know, God just couldn't do that to me. If God is so good, God is so loving that, that it, is, it is definitely against uh, the concept, the idea of an eternal hell is against uh, the nature, the character, and the attributes of a loving God, uh, uh, human nature, sin's nature of destruction rather than perpetual misery, the nature of holiness and happiness and the nature and the object of punishment. You can look and there's a citation there to this book and an online website you can go and look at uh, this idea and concept that they argue against people being sent to hell because it just defies God and who God really is in life. You see some other religions as well. Jehovah's Witnesses is a good one. Uh, some of us have uh, had them knock on our doors before, and I have as well, and tried to engage them in some conversations about things. But until I started studying this lesson, this wasn't really one of the things that really jumped out at me. But it's a pretty major thing with regard to the, the, the doctrines that they espouse and that they teach with regard to Jehovah's Witnesses. And one of the things that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, assert is that the Bible presents uh, hell as being uh, certain words, and you can look in your notes to to talk about this word study. Uh, And the idea of eternal torment, though, is something that would be detestable again to God and would be inconsistent with His love. And they point to Jeremiah 32, 35, 1 John 4, and verse 8. Of course, talking about God is love. Anyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. So the concept of God being love to Jehovah's Witnesses is an argument that they espouse and they argue saying if God is truly love, then the idea of a place of torment is going to be exactly contradictory to God. And so they go on into a further interpretation and looking at the Bible and again, we can't get into premillennialism and the fact of God coming or Jesus coming back to the earth and reigning for a thousand years. Uh, for those of you who have ever studied that concept, it's not a, a one class topic really to get into. It is pretty deep uh, to trudge through those things. But the Jehovah's Witness believe in a, a millennial reign of Christ, uh, which will be a thousand year reign, that he's actually going to come back, set up his kingdom on this earth again, and actually rule on this earth in an earthly way, in an earthly form and fashion. For 1,000 years. And Jehovah's Witnesses say that, in fact, the idea of Judgment Day that you read about in the Bible isn't, in fact, just some day where all the reckoning is, is come, but that Judgment Day actually equates with that 1,000 year reign where all those who have died before will be resurrected and they will experience through that 1,000 year reign uh, the judgment of God. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I would say somewhat far fetched. Uh, when you start looking at the Bible. But there, there's arguments that are made for that. And uh, Jehovah's Witness, again, look at this idea of punishment, the fact that there is a judgment day of God, the fact that God would actually send someone to hell, and they say, whoa, 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 wait a second here. God's all loving. God's all good. If that's the case, there's no way he would do that to man. Think of some other examples. Um, the Latter-day Saints are also are those called the Mormon church. Uh, hell is used, and they, they argue and they assert that hell is used in two different ways. And then the scripture, uh, there's one that is, is used that talks about the uh, spirit prison. There's another term that and it's used sometimes to reference uh, something called the outer darkness. And the outer darkness is kind of characterized by the Mormon church, or at least the Latter-day Saints, as, as being um, 
a, a concept of those who, like the demons and like the devils who have fallen from, from heaven, uh, that they are part of this outer darkness and they have no chance of ever coming back, so to speak. And, and of course, they're not very firm on that. But the other spirit prison is the fact that once men and women die on this earth, the fact is that they may go to this kind of waiting place, this uh, Hadean type realm situation. And even though it may be called hell or, or maybe called Sheol or, or something along those lines, that in fact, they still have an opportunity to repent and uh, actually come to salvation even after death. And that's what the Mormon church espouses. And in fact, they go even further saying that we can pray for the dead, that we uh, on this earth can still uh, say prayers and ask for those who have already gone on and have died, who have already made all their choices and decisions on this life and have passed on, that those souls or those spirits will be able to be hearing and and be repentant uh, to the, the word of God and the gospel call even on the other side of life. And so you see that within the Mormon church. Those righteous, uh, they say, will arise, ultimately live with Christ on earth after his return. Again, they believe in a millennial reign. They believe in the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Uh, They point to Revelation for that. Do some additional study if you'd like to to look at that that concept and that idea. But what you see is that the Mormon church, the Latter-day Saints, believe that uh, those that even though they are dead, even though those spirits have have gone on from an earthly existence, that they still have a a second chance again for being repentant. And then also the fact that they will all rise again and be given a new form, a new body for that millennial reign of Christ one day. Um, And in fact, would not uh, be confined to the depths of some type of eternal fire or torment uh, we call hell. Brother Walt, I think I saw you raise your hand. You're jumping ahead of me in my lesson, Brother Walt, but that's exactly a great point. I don't know if y'all heard them or not, and that's one thing I hate about the auditorium classes, that you can't get to hear the good comments that are made. But Brother Walt says, it's not God that sends me to hell. I'm the one who makes the choices, and I don't like the fact that you ever put that on God because it's really on us. And you jumped all the way to my conclusion, so let's just stop the class. We're done. Um, but no, he's exactly right. Brother Walt's right, and we're going to walk down that road together. But that's exactly the point that we get into this, is that... Um, Obviously, you look around us, and there are different views. The Catholic Church uh, is another view. And if you've ever studied the Catholic religion, you understand that their idea, there's a purgatory. And in fact, the idea of concept of purgatory is that those who have maybe little sins in life, and I'm not sure exactly how you characterize the little sins versus the big sins. God doesn't. He said sin, sin. But the idea and concept there is that even if you die and you're living in sin, you still have a chance to be purged. obviously that's where purgatory comes from. You have an idea or an opportunity to be purged of your sins. Catholic Church doesn't have a problem with praying for the dead as well uh, and trying to uh, still maintain that they can be saved even post-life on this earth. Religions crop up and they try to explain away this idea that in fact God would sentence. And I'm not going to say he's going to send us. You're right. I think that's a good way to to say that. But uh, God's going to sentence us to hell if we don't obey. 
Now, that's what the Bible says, and that's what I want to look at real quickly here. Is that, but, but what you see is that there are some that look at that concept and that reality and the Scriptures and what it says and try and explain those things away because they think that it goes contrary to what God's life is. And it does not. And as we go through this lesson, I think what we're going to see is really what Brother Walt said. It's not God. It's us. The problem's not you. The problem's with me. I've heard that before when I've been broken up with. I think I've used that line when I've broken up with a girl growing up, you know, in Dayton. Uh, y'all remember Dayton years. You know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not you. It's, it's me. It's me. And really, that's what, when we get to this problem and this issue, the problem isn't God. The problem's us. Look what the Scriptures have to say with respect to God's words on punishment. I want to look real quickly with these things. And, and I've got these Scriptures for you in your handout. You can look along with me and then the ESV text. Or you can look in your own Bibles if you'd like to. But what you see when you open up God's Word, and this is just a sampling. I didn't have time to write every verse down here. Uh, we don't have time to discuss it. We probably won't have time to discuss this lesson the way, the way I'm going here lately, it seems like. I was doing good for about the first six lessons, and I've just kind of gone downhill uh, with getting through one lesson and one, one period of class. But what you see is the Bible says the unrighteous will experience endless, everlasting suffering in hell. Now look at these scriptures with me, if you would. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Matthew 23, verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Matthew 25, verse 46. And by the way, this is a key verse. If you want to circle this in your Bible, and I'm going to tell you why it's key, because you look at the description of both hell and heaven here in this, this, uh, this passage, the same words used there. But Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Luke chapter 12, verse 5, but I will warn you whom whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Yes, Brother Walt. That's correct. Yeah, and, and those verses really primarily, those, just those few verses there, as we look at those four verses, as Brother Walt says, Matthew 25, 46 goes against the idea of praying someone out of hell or praying someone out of judgment uh, with respect to those things there. And when you look at that, the fact there is that it's one or the other after this life, after that judgment uh, occurs. And, of course, they will pr- try to argue. And they, there is some, uh, some argument that is made. I don't believe it's valid. But when you look at it, uh, they will argue and say, well, yeah, that's, not, that's after judgment. So you've got until judgment day occurs to be able to try and, and uh, get them, pray them out of hell or pray them out of, of uh, damnation. And, uh, but you're right. When you look at these scriptures, it's pretty evident that, first of all, there is a hell. <laughs> and you'll be surprised. There are some that say there is no hell, like those that we talked about earlier, uh, Christian Universalists, uh, even uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they talk about the fact that there is nothing that is called hell for us to be sentenced to post-life here on earth. Well, the, the Bible blatantly goes against that. And when you look at the passages of Scripture, which I think this is wonderful here, 
Um, and there are other verses as well. There's other verses that talk about that, that hell is actually a place that is called the outer darkness, which is a term the Mormons use. Uh, with regard to their description of what hell is. But it's not just a place of outer darkness. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth is, is additional ways that it is described in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. And, and it's also a place where Mark nine forty three says that fire is not even quenched. Not quenched. Eternal suffering. It does not end. It is endless. It is an eternal suffering in this place called hell. The George. Yeah, and y'all can imagine the way my mind works being a lawyer and all this and dealing with trials and sentencings and those kind of things. And you're exactly right. There is not going to be a presentation of evidence one way or the other. You're not going to get to go to heaven and say, but, 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 God, hold on. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, hey, I've done this and I've done that. You know, our actions and our choices will ultimately speak uh, in the end for us, and God will already know those things. Brother Lon. <laughs> it's a good question. The question that is asked is, when is Judgment Day? You go to funerals and you hear people preach and uh, they say they are uh, far better off now. They're far better off uh, than they were. Um, first of all, I can't tell you when Judgment Day is going to be. I, I don't know for sure. I don't think anybody does. Do what? Yeah, and the scriptures talk about Judgment Day occurring after Christ comes again. So the Judgment Day, I believe, what you're alluding to, has not occurred yet. Uh, I have an intense problem when you go to funerals. <laughs> and and, and I, I don't want to get into debates with preachers or those who do funerals, but I have a, a problem when you go to a funeral and you talk about someone going to heaven because you don't know. You don't know. Uh, I know what you're trying to do is make the family feel better, and I understand that, you're trying to give them some comfort and some peace with regard to it. But you don't know. Because you're right, Judgment Day has not occurred yet. We don't know on this side of life. I think we can look at people's lives and the choices they've made and and try to maybe um, assume or speculate the fact that they've lived a good life. You know, in reality, we don't know what the private life is. We don't know what the personal life is. They could have a personal sin. They could have some struggle they've had that they have kept hidden from everybody but God. And we don't know in the end. So I have a big problem, Lon, with regard to going to funerals and that happening. I think we need to go and celebrate the life that they lived and enjoy those things and the experiences we had. I don't think we can preach them into heaven, and I think we've got to be cautious about that because that's what happens a lot of funerals, is they try to say they, they're going to heaven, that they're better off. We don't know they're better off. They could be worse off. Uh, they could be already experiencing the, the, uh, the suffering that we see in the, the parable that Christ told of, uh, of Abraham's bosom versus the rich man. And uh, he, he just wanted a drop of water. You remember that? Uh, so I think we need to be cautious. I don't know when the judgment is, but I know it's coming. And I know it's going to be here. And I think that's what, what we see here with regard to God's words on punishment is the fact that, hey, we can anticipate and know that punishment's coming. And there's a day of reckoning that's going to be coming to us that if we don't straighten up our lives, if we don't do the things that we're supposed to be doing, we better be prepared. 
And I think that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, on us and our lives. And we see in the, uh, the scriptures, of course, again, that, the, that there's a description uh, of hell, but there's also a description of spiritual death. And you look in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, that's not necessarily talking about a physical death. Now, that's not to say that your sin may not cause physical death. It could. I've seen overdoses. I think that's a sin of, of, of abuse sometimes, and that actually could lead to your death. Uh, drunken driving. I think there's a problem with drunken driving. Why? Well, I think you're misusing your body. You're taking substances that, that take over your self-control. I believe I can make an argument that's sinful in life. If you're driving down the road and you kill somebody else, but you, or maybe you just kill yourself in the course of that, that sin could bring about death, physical death. But what you look at in Romans chapter 3, that's not physical death he's really talking about here. And you go on and read the surrounding verses in the context of Romans chapter 3, as it goes on in the, the Romans 4, 5, and 6 even, it's talking about our spiritual life. And so, in fact, spiritual death really is the wages of sin. And that's what we see in the Bible speaking to us and telling us that, that there is a, a spiritual repercussion from our sin. And not only that, when you look even further in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 and some other verses uh, talking about God and sin, we know they cannot cohabitate. They're not together. If there is sin in the room, guess what? God's not there. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Our iniquities have caused a separation. We are separated from God. That's what happens when we have sin in life, whether it's on this earth or whether it's in the afterlife. If there is sin existing in life, we've got to be cautious, right? Because if we're not, what happens? There is a separation that exists between us. There is a hell. That hell is eternal. You can go and do a word study if you want to on the word eternal, and, and we, can, uh, we can see the fact that God actually... Um, defines that word pretty well. And there are even some members of the brotherhood, there's some members of the church that have tried to argue even the fact that it's not really an eternal, an eternity with respect to a time frame, a duration of suffering. I think they're wrong. There's one good brother, uh, I've enjoyed many of his books. He's actually a professor here in uh, Montgomery now over at Faulkner uh, at Jones School of Law. And, and he had a very prominent book that came out several years ago, and he's talking about the afterlife. And it said pretty much we have misconstrued, we have misinterpreted, we have mistranslated the fact of eternal nature of God or the eternal nature of, of heaven or hell. And in fact, it's not necessarily a duration, it's more of the effect that it has. Now, we're getting into semantics, and I don't want to overburden you with regard to all of that, but I think he's wrong. I think there is refutation that you see. Apologetics Press has a great refutation of it, if you want to get on there and see. Uh, going into the use of the word eternal, and as I said, you look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, the same word used for eternal life is the same word used for eternal punishment. It is a duration. In fact, every use of that word in the Bible and in the Scripture the Greek scholars, not me, not John Cackleman, but the Greek scholars are going to tell you it has to do with duration. And so in your mind, we can all wrap our minds around the fact that it is a never-ending punishment. Just like on the flip side, it would be a never-ending enjoyment. Eternal punishment exists. God does have hell to sentence us to as an option. And we've got to understand that in our lives. Now, 
how do we reconcile and how do we go into all the fact that, that God would actually pronounce that sentence on us? And I think the, 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 the comments that have made thus, been made thus far are, are right on point. They're spot, spot on. Because what you look at is, is God's justice in the face of man's choices. I can give you example after example after example of what justice on this earth could be. I've experienced it over eight years in the DA's office and now in the Attorney General's office. You see it on a daily basis with respect to what happens when someone commits a crime or or does something wrong and then ultimately goes before a judge to be sentenced. And what you see before that court is supposed to be justice. Supposed to be justice. And justice is, in fact, something that you have an even-handed treatment. And, in fact, you give them a, a proper punishment based upon their actions and the choices that they made. In some sense, it's somewhat of an equivalency uh, rationale. Now, obviously, culture, uh, type of crime, uh, maybe harm to the victim, all those kind of things go into play as a judge may think through his mind of what is justice in this case. But that's the ultimate goal, is justice. Is that what we deserve, we actually are going to get. Now, the wonderful thing about that is we understand, first of all, it's based on our choices, we got ourselves in that predicament, and, and it, it bugged a gripe out of me every time I went to court, and I heard someone get up in front of a judge and try to say, but, but Your Honor, it, it wasn't my fault that I was in that car driving that night. Judge, it wasn't my fault that that gun was loaded. Judge, you know, my mama, my mama taught me better, but, you know, I just didn't listen, and it's not my fault. God, just, Judge, please have mercy on me. And again, by the way, this is God ultimately, his justice is going to be tempered by mercy and grace. We're not going to be able to get that far in our discussions. But Christians who are faithful, we don't get what we deserve. Because God says when we are faithful, we have God's grace. That's his unmerited favor. We have his mercy that is bestowed upon us. So we don't have to experience the justice. That's a wonderful thing about it. But if you're not faithful, God says, my justice will be meted out to you. If you're not a Christian... If you're not doing those things that you should be doing, if you're not obeying the things that you should be obeying, my justice will be there and no excuse is going to be good enough for God. No excuse will be good enough. This lesson really comes about to being about what is the justice of God. And real quickly here in the last few minutes of class, I would like to us to, to understand and go through a few points that I think would help us understand the fact that God has righteous judgment Whenever we approach his throne there on the day of judgment, whenever it may be, Brother Lon, we're going to have justice served to those who need justice served. And for those of us who hopefully are faithful, justice will not have to be served. Why? Because we're covered by the grace and the mercy of God. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thought. But think of God's righteous judgment. The things that he does in the end are going to be righteous. Why is that? Well, first of all, we understand and know that God is just. Look real quick with me. Hebrews chapter 6. And we're not going to get to read all these verses, but follow me quickly as I flip through here if you can. Hebrews 6 verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we also have taken refuge uh, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope set before us. Now, the idea there is God will not lie to us. He has given us his word. He has told us what's going to happen, and God's not going to lie. So we can be assured of those things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 6, 
That's the wrong verse there. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Uh, please disregard the scripture up there, but it's chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 10. Here, Paul, of course, is talking to the Thessalonian brethren. And he says here, you also became imitators of us, of us, <coughs> excuse me, of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of his Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a a true, a living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who receives us or who rescues us from the wrath to come. And of course, what we see here is God gives us his word. He gives us the idea and the concept throughout scripture that it's his son who came to rescue us, give us an out, so to speak, of the judgment that could befall us if we are not faithful and obedient. Now, the justice of God will be meted out to those who are not obedient, those who do not conform and do those things which he uh, commands us to do. But we know we have a just God who lives and who will be there on the day of judgment to do the things which are just in his sight. And we see in uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Flip over there if you can with me. Luke 18, verse 7. I know I'm moving fast. Look, verse 6, and the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not, ju- will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Justice will be brought. Justice will come. And we know that our God is, in fact, just. He does not lie. He tells the truth. Sin is not a part of him. So the deception, those kind of evils that we see here on this earth don't abide with God. But God is just and he will bring about those things in which we, which we rightly deserve if we're not obedient to him. Now, I think another aspect of talking about God's righteous judgment comes into play about the fact that God allows free will to occur. And I don't want to get too, too far into to free will. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 if you can. Uh, of course, this is a passage in the Old Testament dealing with um, Moses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, uh, Moses here makes a statement that I think is very important uh, for us. And um, he's speaking and, and talking about uh, the, the, the nation being restored and encouraging them to return to God. And, and verse 17, but if your heart turned away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Verse 18 says, you will perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. Moses here, I think, lays it out pretty plain and simple for the the nation of Israel as they confront this choice betwixt two different things. You got life and you got death. Which one are you going to choose? 
It reminds me of Joshua over in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15 as he stands there before the people who have forsaken God time and time again. Their descendants, they know the stories of how they've turned their back on God. And he stands up unto them and say, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, what's sad as you look at the, the time frame and the history of mankind, you realize we have the free will ability of choosing. We can choose those things. And as you think about God's righteous judgment, it's hard, I believe, and Brother Walton, Brother George said the same thing a minute ago, it's hard to disregard the fact that we make decisions in our lives. They're not God's fault. They're not God's choices. They're our decisions. Think back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, as that fall of Eden began, what happened? God gave man free will. They could choose. He let them choose. He didn't want robots for servants. He wants willing, truly loving servants. So he allowed them to choose, and they made the choice. They were given free will, and how that incorporates with the justice and the righteous judgment of God is very important because God's righteous judgment, again, depends on the choices of man. We have choices. We have decisions we can make. And those things that God allows us to to partake in, if we so choose, may very well impact the rest of our life. Not only here on earth, but also the hereafter. Also, you think about God's righteous judgment, think about what God actually wants. You know, it's amazing, you go before the courts of law in the world today, and sometimes the judges just want you to step up and take responsibility, to be honest with you. And there are very few occasions where I've actually had that happen. I remember one murder case of mine, and this man was charged with capital murder. We ultimately entered into a plea agreement for it to be reduced, and, and he pled guilty. And, um, and I remember, it kind of struck me because during the course of the plea negotiations, I, found, I had found out that he was a member of the Church of Christ. <laughs> and here I am prosecuting one of my own brothers in Christ for committing a murder. Um, very odd, very weird feeling to think about that. What I do recall, what I remember more than anything, is the fact that during the course of the plea, he said, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. I wasn't myself. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to change. He was on drugs that night. It's undisputed. He was drinking. He was doing things he shouldn't have done. He had a gun. He shouldn't have been involved in that. It's a drug deal going bad. It was just not a good situation. But I'll never forget the penance that I saw that day. God wants us to be penitent. He wants us to show our remorse, not just because we got caught, but because we love him and we realize in our heart of hearts that what we've actually done is not just committed a crime or or committed a sin or, or done something wrong. We, in fact, have hurt him. And that's what God wants. You look at the passages, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, and what you see there is that God wants us to come to repentance. And that's the fact that God is long-suffering. He's patient. He wants us to come about and to be those things. God's righteous judgment is honestly delayed for our sake so that we get our lives straight. So he gives us time to try and get things right until that right time occurs for judgment to occur. We don't know when it's going to be, but we got to take advantage of every single moment because we don't know when it's going to end. And in fact, what we see here, God is patient toward us. He is long-suffering so that no one should perish, but that we should turn our lives to him and repent 
of the sins we have. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, I like that passage of Scripture. And you see there, uh, the Hebrew writer says this, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded it as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? As Christians, or just even as non-Christians, every time you sin and do something wrong, you actually trample under your foot the Son of God. That's pretty sad. God doesn't want us to act that way. That's not God's desire. He seeks us to turn away from those opportunities we have to trample under the foot of uh, uh, the, the Son of God and to, to, sh- the, to act as though the blood that was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary means nothing. He wants us to turn from those things and to turn again to Him and follow after those things that He commands us to do. That's what God seeks. He doesn't seek destruction. He doesn't seek uh, for us to be punished he, he honestly, I, I believe you can make the argument, he honestly does not want to give us justice. He wants to give us mercy. And the only way he can do that is if we make those choices that he's told us in the Scripture. But that's what he wants. That's what he seeks in life. Also, God is impartial. Real quickly here as we think about this point, God is impartial. Uh, God does not, he's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't try to differentiate between anybody. That shows righteous judgment there. It doesn't matter who you are, what course of life you may be in, if you're young or you're old, you're rich or, or you're poor, you're black, white, you're, you're yellow, you're whatever, whatever color skin, whatever location you're from, whatever history of sinfulness you might have, God treats us all the same. How can that not be righteous? You know, Paul, who was a murderer, who went around and defiled the church of God, who went around and threw Christians in prison, is treated the same way as a kid who grew up in the church, who didn't have to experience that problem of, of, of being raised maybe in a different course of life and maybe challenged to... to challenge their own faith to make sure it's that right course of action. Everyone's the same. Every opportunity treated the same because God's righteous. He's just. And finally, what we see here also, and we're dealing with God's righteous judgment, how we know that in the end, His judgment will be what's best is the fact that God keeps His promises. You look all the way back in Genesis, all the way to Revelation, and the course of, of history of the world is really one underlying focus. It's the fact that God promised and God delivered. Even in the face of man and their ineptitude and their sinfulness and their bad decisions, their bad choices, their bad way of living, the fact that they forsook him time and time again, turned their backs on God. You know, we think Israel's bad. Think about our own nation today. Think about our own community today. Think about everything that goes around and the fact that, that men and women on a daily, hourly, minute, second basis defile God. What's awesome, and this is a good use of the word awesome, by the way. Some kids use it, I think, very flippantly. But what is awesome in all that is that God looks past it all. And our awesome God 
fulfills the very promise that he gave to Adam and Eve. He fulfills the very promise that he gave to to Abraham, then to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the other patriarchs of the Old Testament. He fulfills that promise that he gave in the New Testament to the disciples when they were told that if they suffered and they bled and they died for the sake of Christ, that they would be blessed. Hebrews chapter 11, dealing with you know, the, the history of the world and going through all those things, talks about the fact that there are some who you know, may not have seen things from afar. And as you get on into the, the, the great hall of faith in, in chapter 12, and you talk about the fact that there are this faithfulness that you see, that they didn't have it. They could not experience it at that moment in time. Why? Well, it just wasn't there. It wasn't in due course. But what they did is they saw it afar, and I love the way they phrased that. It's the fact that they had the foresight, the, the ideology, the, the concept, the teaching, that they could look ahead and they could see the end result, the end game, so to speak, of, of this world. And Revelation is a wonderful book to read when you talk about the victory in the end. You talk about an end game scenario, read Revelation, and you're going to see who's going to conquer, and that's going to be God in the end. And that's what we see is God fulfills his promise throughout all of time. And because